Hey guys, hope you're doing fantastic. Welcome to 2021. And we've put 2020 behind us. I hope you had a fantastic break. I hope despite where you are listening and despite what's happening in your pocket of the world that you were able to take some time off to adjust, to clear your mind, to think about opportunities that lie ahead. And One of the things that I want to start off uh, this episode talking about is really that there's so much news about the challenges we face. There is so much uncertainty in our world, yet I fundamentally believe that 2021 is a year of renewal, is a year of opportunity, and what we're going to do together is we're going to do two things. We're going to look at the threats because we're not naive, we don't live in a bubble, And we're going to address the threats. We're going to look at everything that's going wrong. But we're going to channel our energy to then find the opportunities that are available for us in all of these challenges, in all of these threats. And so I know that sounds really, really crazy, but that's what I've been doing. I've been writing notes and I've been preparing some awesome content to share with you. And the podcast this year is really going to be about these running thoughts These running ideas, they're going to be about notes with my conversations that I have with really, really smart people, people that are much, much smarter than me. They're going to be me sharing content with you that's opening up my eyes. And what we're going to do together on the podcast is we're going to go on a journey together. You're going to come with me as I find these opportunities. You're going to come with me as I explain and investigate and I'm going to have you right by my side as we pick these opportunities and we utilize them and we come towards the end of the year and look back and say episode one of 2021 this is where our thoughts are and this is where we are and so I'm super pumped Um, and one of the things that I've been doing since the 14th of December basically took time off from the 14th of December to unwind and even though this year we weren't really going anywhere we had no family vacation planned and you know we quickly hit another breakout of COVID in Sydney Australia which is where I live I decided to take a few days um, to clear my mind and investigate opportunities and, and open up the things that I had been blocking off. And so I've got a habit that many of you probably know and that I only focus on what I understand. But what I wanted to do from the 14th of December through to the 4th of January is really have downtime to investigate things that I don't understand. What are the things that are on my mind? What are the things that I've cut off? Where are the opportunities that I've been naive about and have I been right or have I been blatantly wrong and if I've been wrong that's fantastic because there's an opportunity for me to learn and an opportunity for me to get better and so as I reflected 
um, took me a few days to to wind down. Um, you know, we've had a big period in our business uh, in the second half of 2020, and took me about three or four days just to clear my mind, to remove that 100% focus and energy that's on our business and on our work, and really to start listening. Uh, the way I learn is I like to listen to different podcasts. I like to investigate different videos on YouTube, and I like to read a lot. Read a lot. And one of the books that I decided to to start reading uh, in my vacation was a book by an Italian author called Umberto Eco. Umberto Eco is is known uh, for writing classics. He's known for writing in the name of the rose, and he's known for writing narratives. Um, yet I found a book that he wrote, which was called On the Shoulders of Titans. I found it uh, in my library. I took my children to the library at the, at the last day of school, and I said, you're going to have to hire, uh, hire some books. You're going to have to read alongside your iPads and, and your games and everything else. And and I said, and they said, what about you, Daddy? I said, yeah, I will too. And I found Umberto Eco's book and on, on the Shoulders of Titans, and it's a collection of essays. And it's very, very beautifully put together. And he starts it with this essay that he wrote. You can Google him and you can read all about him. And he's unfortunately passed away now, but he was a modern-day philosopher. Uh, and he starts talking about how every generation stands on the shoulders of the previous generation and looks forward and creates and innovates. And that really resonated with me because a lot of the things that are new and coming into the world, I need to look at them and view them in the same way that I was embracing new things relative to my parents' generation. In the same way that when my parents saw a color television or a man landing on the moon or modern day finance, they were looking forward and standing on the shoulders of their parents who had survived wars and so on and so on and so forth. And so when I sat down and said, you know, what are the new technologies that are really frontier technologies that I've dismissed or the opportunities that I've dismissed that are up? and coming and cutting edge and I decided that the cryptocurrency space the Bitcoin space in particular Bitcoin as an asset is something that I had took time over the years to learn about but I had never taken time to understand I had never taken serious time to understand it and to form a basis on it. I had dismissed it. And the reason for that is, I remember one of my best mates uh, in 2011 sent me an SMS. Um, I was on TV. I was doing a lot of financial media coverage as part of my role in 2011. And he said, what do you think about Bitcoin? And I had no idea what it was. This is 2011 when it was really, really fresh. And I Googled it and I saw that a Bitcoin was worth 100 US dollars and it had gone from something really, really tiny. And I said to him, man, I don't understand this, but stay away. You know, it seems like a bubble to me. And how wrong was I? 
how naive was I? Because Bitcoin then went from a hundred to a thousand to five thousand, topped out at twenty thousand in twenty seventeen, and then twenty seventeen I was really resentful, um, and I was calling it a bubble, and I was calling it rubbish, and I was calling it crap, and it fell, and it fell, and it came back more and more, and in twenty twenty, as markets came down, Bitcoin bottomed, but then it started to rise. And it started to recover. And so I said, I'm going to take time out. I'm going to understand Bitcoin. I'm going to really try to investigate what this is about and whether it's crap, as I thought, or whether I need to change my mind. And so what I did is I started to look at Bitcoin in particular in the context of cryptocurrencies. I started investigating and learning about cryptocurrencies and how technology has come about in finance and in payments and is making so many improvements. Again, things that I knew, but not necessarily things that I had stopped to understand and to think about. And the more I learned, the more I started to really appreciate Bitcoin for the following reasons. The main reason is that Bitcoin has a maximum supply of 21 million coins. To me, that is 90% of the game with Bitcoin. Every single thing that I hear, I always go back to those 21 million coins. It is rare. It is finite. And if you think about all the rare assets in, in the world, they continue to go up. You know, I've been sharing notes with you and I've been talking to you guys like a broken record over the past couple of years of how the value of money is falling, how paper money is worthless, how you need to think about investing in things that are going to give you growth and worth, and how paper money, currency, Australian dollars, US dollars, Great British Pounds, are becoming more and more worthless because governments keep printing them. All the stimulus that we hear about in the, on the news to address the pandemic is all printed money. It's all borrowed money. It's all made up money. And as they create more and more of it, things that are rare like diamonds, things that are rare like luxury real estate, things that are rare like Picasso paintings and Rembrandts and and all these things that are really rare continue to rise in value because the investors that have a lot of cash don't want to be holding this paper money. You know, you earn 0% today in the bank when you put your money in. And there is no incentive to hold paper money. And there's an incentive to go and find other things to invest in. And then there's Bitcoin. This technology that's decentralized it's not owned by anyone there's no company behind it it can't be manipulated by a ceo it is a finite amount of 21 million coins that can be transferred between any two parties anywhere in the world in a decentralized way with no government in the middle with no business in the middle with no one there to stop it. 
And because there's only 21 million coins, the value keeps rising. And that was my basis for opening up my eyes and revisiting Bitcoin. I also started to understand how the mining process works and how the mechanics of Bitcoin works. You know, if I transfer Bitcoin to you, how does that actually work? What happens? Who does the computation? Who does the effort required? If there's no central body, if there's no IBM, Facebook, Apple, Google in the middle, who's doing the work? Who's facilitating the transfer from you and me? And what reward are they reaping? And so I started to understand the mining process of Bitcoin, the reward, how blocks are written, and it's absolutely fascinating. And so what I want to do this year, and particularly at the start of the year, is I want to bring you insightful interviews that I'm listening to, some really, really smart people. Uh, one of the best interviews that I found was Raul Paul is um, the founder of Real Vision. Real Vision is an awesome network of financial news, uh, particularly in video format. So Raul is a um, is a, a hedge fund trader. He used to be at Goldman Sachs, really respected guy. He's been around for a very long time, but built an awesome business. And he came out in uh, December, early December, and he said that he was selling all his assets um, and putting a big chunk in cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I thought that was crazy. You know, I thought that was a top. I thought that was capitulation. But then I started to actually listen to his reasonings and to his ideas. And he makes a lot of sense. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to bring you one of those interviews and one of those insights uh, in which he discusses how cryptocurrencies are going to absolutely change many of the things that we do in everyday finance and everyday investing and where he thinks the price is going and and before i bring that to you i want you to understand that this is these are just my notes these are my educational notes and uh, this is not advice to you this is purely intended for education purposes i don't want you to go out and buy bitcoin or buy cryptocurrencies or buy anything uh, purely because You've heard myself or an interview that I share with you talking about it. I want you to open up your eyes and use these insights and leverage off my thinking pattern, leverage off my network, and to use it as a platform to go and do your own research, right? So please keep that in mind, guys. Um, I really, really want to make sure that you understand that we're sharing big picture ideas here about the future, about 2021. And um, one of the other things I'm also really interested in is the network benefits. So what I mean by that is, if you remember when Facebook first came out, it was a platform that was really used by a few people. It wasn't really mainstream. It wasn't really a major lifestyle thing. Same with Instagram, same with WhatsApp, same with every single technology that's came out. But at some, some point, they hit a certain critical mass and the value of the network becomes so valuable that it sort of justifies the existence of that thing. So think about WhatsApp, for example. If you've only got two or three of your friends 
on WhatsApp. You can't really use it as your main messaging application. But if you start having 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 100 of your friends on it, it not only becomes valuable to you, but it starts to become valuable to them. And the value of the network grows the more people that use it. That's why these technology businesses are so valuable. That's why we hear about these crazy valuations. And that's why I believe Facebook buying WhatsApp for a billion dollars was one of the steals of the century. When they did that deal, everybody thought they were crazy. Today, WhatsApp is one of the reasons uh, why Facebook stock price is where it's at. There's a lot of angst about where that goes, what that means. But WhatsApp is the number one messaging application in the world. It's the number one way people talk to each other. And I really believe that Bitcoin is on that course. And cryptocurrencies will really become the future of payments, the future of money, and the future of finance. And while today we transact Australian dollars and US dollars and pounds in our local currencies, Bitcoin will become a bigger and bigger part of that process. I don't know how that will come about. But I do know that as it starts to hit $500, $600 billion of value, we cannot dismiss it because the network effects are getting larger and larger. And so again, this is something that in this chat that I'm going to bring to you today is discussed. It's very interesting. And I'm going to put a bow on this and now go into that. And I just want you all to know that while the world is so uncertain, there are many opportunities that are about to come about. There are many ways that we can think and grow in cryptocurrencies and digital finance and the innovation around payments and the whole money system being flipped upside down is so freaking exciting and I'm pumped and I'm going to bring you these opportunities this year. So thanks a lot. Make sure... At the end of the chat, you have an opportunity to share this podcast with someone that you think might find it interesting. And give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Really appreciate it because when you rate it and when you write a comment, Apple's algorithm will actually say, hey, this podcast is insightful and we'll start serving it to more and more people. So it meant a lot to me personally. If this year, if you're liking the content, um, you can do that. We get thousands of listeners per episode and I'd love for you to magnify that and to share it so we can reach more people. Thank you, God bless, and now let's go straight into it. All right, guys, bang, bang, you're in for a treat. Raul's here. Uh, thank you so much for doing this again, sir. Um, I was looking forward to it. When you reached out, I thought this would be fun. So last time we did this, we did this in New York. Uh, we did it in March. I think we were one week, 
early to the government mandated lockdowns, uh, the coronavirus kind of mania, and uh, you had a pretty grim message, uh, but one that ended up being uh, fairly accurate in terms of a lot of things that were going to transpire. Let's just start with what has happened since March, right? So we had the government lockdowns. How do you view kind of the macroeconomic landscape uh, over the last, call it six to eight months? Yeah. So if you remember when we spoke, we talk about this three part, three phase that happens over these kind of crises. One was that liquidation phase, which happened almost immediately I left your office, right? So that that that, that happened, that finished in the end of March. Then we had what I called the hope phase. And the hope phase was when everybody thought it was gonna be okay. And we saw that there was a big lift in asset prices, everyone thought it was okay. And then I said, it's gonna to transition to the insolvency phase. And that's where we start to see the drag on GDP growth going forwards. And that in itself would start to see people get laid off again, the stimuluses disappear, small businesses go under, and that process unfolding. So let's look back and put, okay, how did, how did that do? So the hope phase was dead right. Now, what surprised me is the hope phase in markets never went away. Yes, the bond markets were different and the banks traded differently. So we, we saw this bifurcation, people call it the K-shape. But really, the markets kept hope while the underlying economy, you know, whether it's Europe or whether it's the US, has kind of slowed down again. So we're still seeing, exactly as my thesis, year-on-year GDP growth, like negative 5%, negative 4%. Everyone focuses on that Q on Q number of, hey, GDP's up 34%. No, everybody's having a really shit time of it. And, you know, the dichotomy between Wall Street and the average guy is something I've never seen in my life before. I mean, it's simply staggering. But that's where we are. Um, we're in that situation now where this virus is going to continue longer than expected. You know, we're going to get another spike after Thanksgiving travel in the US. Then we've got to go into Christmas and New Year. I, in the US, they're never going to tell people not to do Christmas or New Year's Eve parties. So by the time Biden gets in in February, he's going to be peak virus. And there's a decent risk that, that the US is really going to have to to shut down various parts of the economy to get this under control while they roll out the vaccines. In Europe, the situation has already happened. So they made the mistake of reopening over the summer, let everyone go on summer holiday. Everyone goes down to Spain, gives each other the virus, comes back and explodes. Genius. So the Europeans are now fighting it. They've had to lock down. It's been pretty clear by everybody from the Germans to the English to the Swedes that nobody's really going to properly reopen until March or so. Um, so we've got this situation where the global economy, and, and it looks like Christmas is going to get cancelled in Europe. You know, COVID is going to be the, 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 the Grinch that stole Christmas. And that's, in Europe, huge spending. So the economy is going to be weak. It's going to be weaker for longer. All of those shops and you know, hairdressers and restaurants, all of that stuff that rely on Christmas and New Year, it's done. So that's the situation we're in. We're seeing the rise in Asia. We're seeing slowdown in Asia as well. It's not as bad. Yes, we know the deaths aren't as high, but it's not about deaths. It's about your mum taking evasive action, staying at home, not spending, you not going to see her for Christmas, not bringing a bunch of presents with you, not bringing you know, your siblings there. It's just natural human behavior. So everyone just needs to ignore the politics of it. It's just humans and we just do the same kind of thing, which is we're risk averse. And governments are risk averse too. So that's the situation we're in. So I think we've got a pretty ugly patch coming up. Who knows what the markets do? The markets want to look through it. 
But the, the outcome of all of this, and crucially to the conversation we're going to have is, okay, we missed an entire stimulus in the US, which is the one from September, never got done. And a bunch of stuff's about to roll off in December as well. So it's a wily e. coyote moment for everybody where you're off the end of the cliff and there's nothing beneath you until the new administration gets in and they can try and get a similar package through. But we don't know what's going to happen to Georgia. We don't know whether they're going to get the Senate. Are they going to get through a stimulus package or not? Who knows, right? So it's a messy situation. Europe, they're going to have to stimulate again. Um, how? Well, the ECB said they're going to do something because inflation is negative and falling. But the governments themselves can't. Italy's already applied to say, can you write off some of this debt? Nobody knows how they're going to deal with this. Nobody knows how the banking system's going to work. So you've got the central banks trying to support this whole situation because fiscal stimulus is not happening. And the problem is the monetary mechanism doesn't work. So velocity of money, every single major country in the world outside of the US is now below one. And the US is 1.2 or somewhere. So basically money from central banks doesn't go through the banking system and into the economy and works. So that's kind of what I think is coming. Obviously, through the back of that, we then get the recovery. I mean, it's, it's a standard recession at some point. Things look good again. And then we look for the macro trends that, that emerge from that. How do you think about uh, kind of the early stimulus packages, right? So we had like, you know, three plus trillion dollars um, and then we got towards the end of the year and, you know, basically politics took over. But in terms of the actual response kind of in March and into April, if you had to give a grade, was that a A plus response, a C minus somewhere in between? Like, how do you just think about what the Federal Reserve and elected officials did? I thought it was the fastest response I've ever seen to something that was a severe shock. I mean, it's the biggest shock you and I are ever going to live through in our lifetimes in terms of the economy, you know. Um, and they were quick and they were pretty big. Everybody did it. The problem is it was all, and I, this is what I mentioned and I've been talking about, it was all short term. So nobody figured out that this was going to last longer, which is what I talked about when I saw you last. It's like, this is a longer event than people imagine. So what happened is everything started rolling off. And then in the US, it's so political to try and get anything done, it stopped. So they did a great job. You know, the Federal Reserve, like it or not, stopped the credit market imploding. Um, if the credit market imploding, that's the pension system gone. And they stopped it. Yeah, it's not good that they're ending up buying Microsoft debt and all that kind of shit. You know, it doesn't make sense. But I understand speed was of the essence at that point in time. Now... What they've done is basically destroyed the monetary mechanism, the credit markets um, and everything else in the interim because they've basically supported everything. Yeah. And so when you think about kind of this intervention, uh, I think there's a lot of people who say, hey, I don't like it, but they had to do it. They did it. That's the situation that we're in. I've been calling it almost like bridge the gap stimulus, meaning that they basically wanted just enough stimulus until the recovery happened. And then they could bridge that gap or, or, or that detraction in the uh, in the economy. Obviously, if it's longer than you expect and you don't get more stimulus done, then you don't bridge the gap. You just fall in the canyon kind of halfway through, which is kind of where we are. Um, but what that does is it changes the investor landscape. And you recently had this thread that uh, went viral around the death of macro, right? And, and uh, what it seems like is that intervention overlaid with all sorts of long-term trends that are now kind of all meeting or intersecting has led to this conclusion. But maybe let's just start with like, what do you mean when you say there's the death of macro? So as a macro investor, what do you trade? 
what do we do? We look at economic signals and look for dislocations in markets where we can profit from those economic trends or dislocations. And that means generally trading top-down asset classes as opposed to picking stocks like Microsoft or whatever it is. So we're looking at currencies and bonds, the two biggest and most liquid markets on earth, commodities because they tend to work according to the economic cycle, things like precious metals, they work according to the monetary cycle, and equities, which are the least macro because they're all based on human behavior um, generally. So, and credit markets is the other one. So, okay, that's the rule book. So whether you're Stan Druckenmiller, George Soros, any macro legend, how have you actually made your money? On the Real Vision interview with Stan Druckenmiller, he made it very clear, he says, everyone thinks it's all about stocks and all of that stuff. He goes, I made all my money in bonds. They all have, right? I mean, I've been in this business since 1990 and bond yields have fallen ever since. And, you know, you've only had one serious pushback. Um, and they've actually been falling since 1982. So everybody's career, Stan Druckenmiller's included, there has been one trade. Why bonds? Well, because bonds actually give you high returns with very low volatility. So risk-adjusted returns are amazing, which means you can take massive leverage. So when things like the economy slows down, bonds rally and bond yields fall. And that kind of 18 month period between the start of a recession afterwards is when you make enormous returns. They all do, they all have, that's macro for you. And bond yields are now at zero everywhere. And I think the US probably ends up with negative rates at the end of this too, much like the UK just went negative over the, over the, um, you know, uh, the autumn. So we're negative to zero interest rates. So basically there's no juice left in that trade. So the biggest trade in the world is gone. Okay, credit. I'm not much of a credit guy because you need a bit more knowledge of the underlying you know, credits themselves. But if you're trading credit as an asset class, as many macro guys do, well, the Fed and the ECB just stopped that game, as did the BOJ. They basically said, we're not going to allow the credit markets to price risk because we can't. And the reason being is we have this old population and they've got all their money in pensions. If you wipe out the pensions, you wipe out the savings of the baby boom generation, which is the largest generation on earth. So that's not going to happen. So now you don't have a credit market and you've seen triple B credits are now all time low yields again <laughs> in the middle of an insolvency event. Brilliant. So no mechanism to price. The equity market basically took all the strains. So the equity market, people said, well, look, let's look at tech stocks that kind of look like, you know, um, perpetual bonds or zero coupon bonds because they generate cash, they've got no debt. So we can price those to infinity because where else do we put our money? I get it. Is that right or wrong? I don't know. The ma macro guys are all trying to figure it out, but they're very nervous of the equity market because nobody understands this new paradigm. Is it real or not? But then the big one is coming, and that's the death of the currency market. That's something that I've been talking about. If that goes, then macro is finished. Because currency, like bonds, is enormous, super liquid. You know, trades for three or four trillion a day. So it dwarfs anything else. Now, what we've heard from the IMF, the BIS, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, the ECB, the Fed, People's Bank of China, and everybody is this move to digital currencies. And I'm sure we'll get in a bit more about that in a bit. But what's been clear is the IMF are pushing for an agenda, which is the new Bretton Woods. And Bretton Woods was an agreement amongst nations 
basically to peg all their currencies to the to gold. And then famously, Nixon came off the gold standard eventually. But that was a post-World War II construct that allowed all nations to kind of not compete with each other on interest rates, to build a platform of which once they built Bretton Woods, they built everything from the United Nations to the World Bank to the IMF and all of these institutions that we know. So if the IMF is saying this, what are they saying? So I've gone through their speeches and they're basically saying, okay, we're in an extraordinary situation right now. Countries need to print money for, to fiscally stimulate, as we talked about earlier, but it's kind of difficult to do it. And if you fiscally stimulate to the amount that you actually need to let's say do proper stimulus, not just giving a check, but creating jobs by creating industries and all of those things that need to happen, well, that's like 20 or 30 or 40% of GDP they need to do. How do you do that without devaluing your currency? And the answer from the IMF is do it all together. If you do it together, then what are you devaluing against? Well, hard assets, Bitcoin, gold, stuff like that. But you're not devaluing each other. You're not winning terms of trade. This is the idea that Facebook Libra had, which is create a basket of currencies where the dollar is one of the currencies. It's not the denominator. So if you think of everything else, it's like euro against dollars, yen against dollars. What they're talking about is having the dollar in the basket. If you do that, then the denominator is money supply. So it becomes a very stable thing because money supply, yes, at times it goes a lot, but it doesn't grow that much. So then what you're basically doing is dampening currency volatility down to zero. And so in that world, um, let's say that we play this out and they actually successfully create you know, a basket of existing sovereign uh, or nation state backed fiat currencies. Uh, and there's kind of this quote unquote one world currency, right? H however you want to think about it. One, that kind of removes all competition between countries, right, in terms of interest rates and, and, and all of that. But two, how does that change what I'll call just the management of monetary policy at the individual country level? Is there still some level of sovereignty and, and each country can kind of do uh, certain things within parameters? Or does it almost get consolidated in um, you know, some sort of like global central bank type well, uh, situation? You know, don't forget – Bretton Woods was essentially a consolidation. But interest rates, countries still need to borrow and lend, and there, there is an interest rate market. So it's not what the ECB is doing, which is creating a single currency. What it is is creating a currency basket of which currencies move around and change their weights within it. So it's more like the S&P than it is the euro. So it, it is different. But I think it opens interesting dynamics of, okay, Let's say they do this. Let's say to be a member nation of this bank core, which is what Keynes talked about back before Bretton Woods. He said, why don't you do this? It's basically the same idea, roughly. So to be a member, let's say, okay, all members are allowed to print 50% of GDP this year altogether. So everybody does their printing. Everyone does their fiscal stimulus. After you do that, you're limited to 2% money supply growth. Or if not, you're out of the basket, so you get worse trade terms. Okay, well, that's interesting, because then you're actually turning it into something that has a limited money supply growth. It actually looks a bit more like Bitcoin. Obviously not in many ways, but in terms of supply. Now, will nations cheat? Will it all go wrong? Of course, you know, <laughs> they're central banks, of course. But, you know, there's interesting mechanisms that they can create out of this. And I think there was a tweet that Sahil Bloom put out today about the Overton window, this is an Overton window. 
basically anything is up for grabs, much like it was after the 1930s when all of these institutions were built and after World War II too. Anything can happen right now. And this is fascinating. You know, this whole central bank digital currency thing, that's going to lead us into a whole new world. But the death of macro seems like it could be a reality. Now, obviously, that's slightly flippant because macro moves around into different areas. Now, in a world like that, what does it mean for emerging markets? It's probably exceptional because let's say you're South Africa. You get killed every time the dollar goes up and you can't export your goods and all of that sort of stuff. But if you have a stable currency to trade in, well, you're going to do much better. So it's probably incredibly positive for emerging markets. Okay, that's interesting. You know, what does it mean for commodity markets? Well, maybe they become less cyclical. Um, how, do, how do countries compete with each other? I don't know. It's probably technology. It's, you know, how do you attract capital in that world when it's not interest rates necessarily? You know, it becomes really interesting as a, as a thing. And, you know, and then how does obviously Bitcoin and gold and stuff like that fit into that? Really interesting. So macro could shift it. Maybe it doesn't. But there's a once in a lifetime, not even a lifetime, a once in a century opportunity to change the construct of the system. Now, whether it's any better or not, I think it'll be better but it won't solve the problems. Fiat money is a bigger problem itself. For sure. And I think one of the most interesting things is uh, as this kind of death of macro trend uh, accelerates and, and becomes kind of more real, uh, what we're starting to see is many of the quote unquote legends of Wall Street who really are just macro traders who have done very well for themselves. Uh, one by one, they're raising their hand and, and um, you know, kind of revealing their interest, intrigue and positions in crypto in general. Right. Usually it's Bitcoin they start with. But but kind of you see everyone starting to uh, not just do it, but be public about that position, to uh, go on television and talk about that bullishness that they have behind the trade. Um, let's start with Bitcoin. I think last time we talked, you were uh, kind of single digit percentage uh, exposure to Bitcoin, and then you had kind of a, what I'll call quote unquote traditional uh, portfolio, but traditional for, for you versus others. Um, now you are uh, 98% of your liquid net worth is invested in uh, crypto. I think it's 80% Bitcoin, 20% Ethereum. Let's just start with like what changed or, or what were the things that went into you going from single digit percentages to uh, more than majority uh, in kind of almost all of your liquid, liquid net worth being so bullish on, uh, on Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum? And again, look, I'm a macro guy, so I don't expect anybody to follow me. You know, you do the same with your allocation. You're looking at it from a macro perspective. Other people can't take the risks. But for me, I looked at the situation. All outcomes for me were, now this is, it rarely happens. Let's say I'm right. Deflation is persistent. The economy is worse than expected. We don't get rid of this whole economic mess until let's say Q3 next year. Okay, so the answer to deflation and slow economy is, Printing of money and more fiscal stimulus. Okay, let's then push that aside and say, no, Raoul's a total idiot. He's completely wrong. The markets are right. Inflation is everything. In an inflationary market, well, Bitcoin and gold do well. So here we've got a smile where the least likely outcome, which is everything just returns back to kind of 1.5%, 2% GDP growth, and we all forget it's just happened. That's not going to happen. Simply not going to happen. Maybe it does, but that's the risk that we all run in the Bitcoin position. So basically, inflation, deflation of any sort, if we look at all the past episodes, whether it was 
2008, 2012 in Europe, when Europe went, almost went under, and then periodically afterwards, the central bank kept stimulating, didn't stop. They're not going to stop here. So that, to me, is a good setup. Okay, so I've now got a good case. So then the case is okay. At that point, I said, right, gold, Bitcoin, those are my main bets. I own some bonds because I'm a deflationist, and I had some dollars because and some other trading positions. Okay, fine. So then what changed is the charts. You know, we'd all been looking at it, that the chart of Bitcoin was this beautiful, beautiful wedge pattern, triangle pattern, and it broke. So, of course, I'm, I'm a macro guy. I can see an opportunity. I can see a great chart when I see one. I start saying, right, look, we've got to get, we've got to add to this. And, you know, I added obviously into the big sell-off as well because I saw this pattern emerging. So then it breaks. I start adding. Okay, so now I'm over 50%. And, what, and just real quick, what were you selling initially to move capital? Was, was there a specific re- asset or were you just going across all assets and kind of taking percentage? I was just percentage? reducing trading positions because I okay. just saw that this one had the propensity to make more money than anything else. But then it got to the point where you start looking at the charts. And I started digging into the charts and writing about it in Global Macro Investor, looking at the comparisons of Bitcoin versus all other assets. And I started tweeting about this. And this is before it really started happening. I'm like... Look at these charts. Bitcoin is about to eat the world, right? It looks like it's going to become the super black hole of which it's going to outperform every single asset class on earth. I've never seen this before. Literally, I've never seen it. You know, we've seen gold might be dominant, but you might have bought copper instead, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing, nothing, not even most of the Amazon and stuff like that. looks like it's going to outperform Bitcoin. So that's when I start saying, okay, this is the time to really go for it because it's a waste of capital to put it into anything else. Now, I'm not coming at this with the philosophy, you know, the Bitcoinization of the world or anything else. I'm coming at here as a macro guy saying, I've never seen a more dominant opportunity in my entire lifetime. And if that is the case, it's time to really back your bet. Absolutely. And, and so I think it's a good opportunity. One of the things that uh, I really enjoy when I talk to you is uh, you talk to lots of different people, right? So you talk to people in the Bitcoin and crypto world. You talk to people in kind of the traditional investing world. Uh, you, many of your friends are some of the best macro investors in the world, some of the most famous investors. Uh, and then you've got a lot of conversations that go on in the institutional world. I think most people know what's going on in the Bitcoin and crypto world and the traditional investing world. In the private conversations you're having with whether it's friends in the macro world or in the institutional world, what is being said in those conversations? And, and I don't necessarily want to know from who, but just w- what's kind of the behind the door conversation around the macro environment and Bitcoin uh, specifically and kind of how people are viewing this? So the macro environment, you rightly alluded before, almost everybody I know has a personal allocation to Bitcoin. Now, Dan Moorhead was first to understand that this was going to beat all other assets. And then it sucked in, you know, one after the other. Probably John Burbank was probably next. And then, you know, Novo. And it just starts, you know, taking people in. People so, in, in raw, raw, people don't understand that you guys are all friends, right? They, they don't understand that there's an entire, uh, I'll call it generation of macro investors that basically grew up together and uh, kind of, you know, went through their careers. And somehow they went from, you know, one trade to the next trade to the next trade. And when Bitcoin became an opportunity, literally it just walked down this entire kind of loose collection of friends until everyone had exposure. Yes. I mean, so if you think of the, the, the macro network, it's not that many people, right? So it's 
basically, the epicenter was probably a few firms plus Goldman. And then, you know, out of that, a bunch of traders at JP Morgan, a bunch of others came out of that. But really, it was Tiger, Soros, Tudor, More Capital, Caxton, um, Omega Partners, and a few others were the big macro players. Um, and those alumni are everywhere. So Dan Moorhead is ex-Tiger. Um, I think he was ex-Goldman as well. Uh, Dan Tapiero was ex-almost all of those. Um, you know, I was ex-Goldman, and then I was running a large hedge fund. So I was a salesman at Goldman, so I knew everybody. So I've been in the middle of the whole lot. So we all know each other. And if we don't know each other directly, we know of each other, because it's not a big universe of people. But it had tremendous influence and huge amounts of capital. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it was a very exciting industry because back in the day, these firms could have 15%, 20% volatility and had huge bets. So you'd get to hear famous people like, well, famous in our world, Nick Roditi, who was actually the big swinging dick at Soros. Um, he lived above a store in Hampstead High Street in London, completely below the radar screen, um, but he was the most aggressive risk taker I've ever seen in the industry. Even Stan Druckermiller says, you know, I think Nick killed Stan on returns, but his volatility was enormous. The size of the risk this older, very quiet guy would take was astonishing. So anyway, so that macro world had high risk taking and high returns. In came the pension funds, in came the insurance companies, in came the sovereign wealth funds. And they said, well, we don't want you to be so risky. And they're like, yeah, but you're not going to get the returns. They're like, well, we don't really care. Um, so they crushed volatility down to 5%. Comes the rise of millenn Millennium and all of these big platform plays where they have lots of traders, low volatility, much lower returns. You know, 10% is a great year. And so what happens is these macro guys start either turning into family offices, Lewis Bacon from More Capital, George Soros was first, um, Julian Robertson, I mean, they all did. Because they're like, fuck that. You know, I want to make money the old fashioned way, which is not by having assets, it's by taking bets. These guys are the great speculators. And then some of those guys went, this Bitcoin thing's interesting. Now, most didn't get it in the beginning, they saw it as a trade. And then everybody saw it, started to see it. Oh my God, there's a parallel universe coming and it's all going to generate alpha because there's no capital and not enough knowledge in the space because everybody in it was a technologist and none of these macro guys were in it yet. So the macro guys went, here's an opportunity for us. And one by one, they all started going, have you seen this? You know, uh, you know if you ask Mark Yusko, if you ask Dan Tapiero, um, they will say that they really got into this at a global macro investor round table of mine I think it was either in Cayman or in Spain, where one of the other global macro guys, another ex-Goldman hedge fund guy, says, by the way, I started a, a, a crypto, a Bitcoin exchange, and you need to find out about Bitcoin. This was 2012. And we started learning about it from them, and that network then spreads, starts talking about it. So we all kind of got polluted at the same time by similar people. It's just, it is a network. And that pollution is, you know, so cut to, I get a phone call on Sunday, uh, one of the Again, I can't mention him. He's one of the most famous hedge fund guys in the world um, and one of the greatest traders I've ever seen. And he really made his money in money markets. He's a rates trader, right? He's a world with no interest rates. So, you know, 
and I've been bugging him about this. I mean, he's been in crypto for a long time. He, he knows it. But I was bugging him like, there's only one trade that matters. And the conversation on Sunday is, yeah, there's only one trade that matters. So, and, and so when somebody like that, who's got world-class experience, access to enormous amounts of capital, uh, I'll, I'll just kind of call it brass balls in terms of the experience of taking big bets with big volatility, what do they do when it clicks? Do they go, let's go 90% into a, a position or are they kind of have their hands tied because of who their LPs are, the fund size, the, the position sizes. And so they may only be able to get, you know, 10 or 20% exposure. And then they've got to figure out what to do with the other 80% of the bucket well, of capital. Firstly, he's a multi-billionaire. That and helps. He really doesn't, it doesn't, you know, he doesn't need to become worth a hundred billion. It's just, it's not relevant really. So it's the game now, right? It's, it's the game plus making sure that his capital grows a reasonable amount without blowing up, right? That's the game. Once you've made your billion, you don't want to lose it. So yes, yeah, so he, he exactly as you said, um, he's in a slightly unusual situation. I can't reveal why because everyone know who he is then. Um, but to take an irresponsibly large bet within the fund, not, not easy to do for the LPs and everything else and the other reasons. But in his personal wealth and parts of the portfolio, you allocate to VC, you allocate to crypto itself, you allocate to other opportunities, you just get involved in the space. And, you know, a lot of people, people like John Burbank, they did the same thing, you know, it, get involved in the space. You know, you guys did the same thing. It's basically the same bet. It's layer on that bet in a number of different ways. And then let's see where that goes. Others, yeah, I, I'm sure we're going to see people taking more aggressive risk, but most people in the hedge fund structure can't. We mm -hmm. will see one or two, I'm sure. There are crypto hedge funds out there that have done astonishingly well anyway. Um, I think a lot of those are going to get bought. So I was speaking to a crypto hedge fund. So this is another part of what's going on is they're all being bought. I mean, again, the, it's just consolidation of kind of the new age hedge fund being bought up or consolidated with the older hedge funds who have lost the ability to get volatility and, and drive higher yeah, returns. It, it, so let's go I mean, to the look new at a, look, look at a firm like Arca. I always use Arca because they're super interesting because they're doing a you know a tokens based kind of bottoms up investing strategy up three hundred percent. Right, there's massive alpha in that space. You know, everybody calls them shit coins. Nobody wants to be involved. So you do your homework, you can make returns. And there's a ton of firms doing different strategies, all got huge alpha. The hedge fund industry has no alpha. There's nothing. It's excess capital, too many machines, and restrictions on volatility. So there's massive alpha. So these hedge fund platforms are going, okay, uncorrelated, gigantic alpha. Nobody's seen this. A lot of the macro guys will have seen it in the emerging markets in the 80s and 90s. Other than that, we've not really seen it in our careers. But one thing that you're mentioning here that I think is really, really important for people to understand is, uh, and you actually tweeted about this, uh, and, and I loved it, which was, look, I belong in no group. You can put no label on me, right? I, I basically look at charts and graphs and assets and, and the macro environment and trends and data and metrics, and then I make decisions, but you can't put me in a bucket. So the labels don't fit. And, and the reason why I bring that up is um, I, I heard from uh, a very dear friend of mine once that he said, you know, Steve Cohen, as an example, could sit down and look at a chart, regardless of what the asset was, 
and start trading it and be successful doing it, right? You just have some people who it doesn't matter what the asset is. What they're looking for is the volatility. They're looking for, um, you know, all sorts of kind of market structure things that they can then exploit for profit, right? And that, that's basically what a lot of these traders and whether it was currencies or, or some other commodity or whatever, like that's what they were doing. What I think is interesting is the difference between Bitcoin and, you know, quote unquote shit coins and, and kind of the rest of the bucket to somebody who is looking at it from a um, a holding standpoint, right, or, or an ownership standpoint. I, I put them in the investor uh, or the saver category. There is massive, massive difference. You could draw a line in the sand that ends up, you know, literally having tectonic plates shift in, in the earth because they're so different. But when you look at it from a pure, I'm a trader and I don't care if I'm trading gold, dollars, Bitcoin or a shit coin, all I'm looking for is volatility that I can capture returns on. All of a sudden, now you start looking for where is the opportunity. And I think what I hear you saying is like, it's definitely not in the traditional assets. It's in this new world. And then each person has kind of preference or, or an advantage in certain assets within the new world that they're going to go try to expose if they're a trader. So. Well, here's something interesting about it, is that's how it starts. And then they start understanding about this new world. Now, whether you anchor on Bitcoin or you anchor on some other thing, you'll anchor on something of which you start building your knowledge base. Same as you when you got into the space, same as everybody does, right? So what happens is they come into it for the trade and stay for the future because we're macro guys. And I say this a lot and people don't really understand, we live in the future. We look at possible futures and try and predict them based on everything from charts to flows to fundamental analysis. And that's why they stay. And that's why they're agnostic to the tribalism. Because what they're saying is, okay, we see this. I don't care whether Bitcoin wins. I know that this whole space is going somewhere and I want to be involved. And then, you know, so I've now got a future framework and I'll trade accordingly. And to come into it with a narrow mindset means that you won't be a, open to opportunity. Now, maybe the Bitcoin maximists are dead right and Bitcoin outperforms everything. Great. The macro guys will also be on that trend. That's their job to isolate that trend. It's like otherwise saying, well, I'm a currency trader and, you know, well, I don't, I'll only trade dollar yen. That's ludicrous. Nobody does that. People look for the opportunity. And then... But these guys are bringing real capital into the space too, because they are investing in startups. You know, again, people philosophically say, "Well, it's you know those speculators; they're just taking advantage of of this whole kind of Bitcoin philosophy." No, they're not. They're also feeding capital. They're bringing a lot of capital into businesses that are building on all sorts of networks. Some will fail. Some will succeed. So. When we go back to kind of your asset allocation, having that perspective in mind, um, what's interesting is you were bullish on gold, Bitcoin, um, and kind of all just call it inflation hedge assets in general. Uh, you now have basically sold, my understanding is, all of your gold uh, or, or majority of it, and your 98% liquid net worth um, allocated to Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, I believe it's 80% Bitcoin, 20% Ethereum. Correct me if I'm wrong there. But just walk us through why sell gold to increase the exposure. Is it there's just more upside and stronger conviction in the trade? Is it something that happened in gold? I think gold goes up. But Bitcoin's going to go up a lot more. It's that moment when you have the light bulb moment is, you know, fuck it. There's a time to stand up and be counted. This is your opportunity. 
Now, could I be wrong? Of course. But it's this looked to me like the best single macro opportunity I'd seen in my entire life. And, you know, I've seen a few good ones. You know, I had a great one with a bond trade, you know, last year and early into this year and stuff like that. But this is better than that. This is, this is a once in a lifetime bet. And kind of when you look at those charts, you see gold breaking down versus Bitcoin and stuff like that. You think, I understand portfolio diversification. I understand why it's important for many people. Um, but I can, I'm in a position where I can take this bet because A, I have income streams. B, I don't have any debt. Um, and so therefore, and I'm not using leverage. So therefore, if it all goes tits up, I'm fine. But it's a very, very big, but I've never taken a bet this big. So one of my questions was going to be, have you ever done something like this before? So that's good to know. The second thing is there's a lot of people asking, uh, when you say liquid net worth, do you consider when you put trades on the percentage of liquid net worth and total net worth? Or do you just think of it in kind of the constraints of what your liquid net worth and, uh, and the percentages of an yeah. individual trade? See, within I that don't realm? run my life like a portfolio. I think it's wrong. And I know people do. This concentration on total net worth. I Explain think, that more, why you don't yeah. do that. So I... It depends what you're in this game for. I'm not in this game for money. Money is a lifestyle token. And for me, what I care about is my quality of life. And again, I'm not talking about I need to have a jet or whatever. It's about a quality of life. You know, can I, can I live in a beautiful house? Can I afford to eat at a nice restaurant? Can I do certain things? And so for me, the primary important thing for me is where I live and property that I have that I use. I don't rent anything out that I have. They're mine. And they increase my quality of life. And so that's what I'm looking for. And so I don't think of, I need to grow my net worth. I'm lucky. I've made some money. I've got what I want now. So then the speculation for me is A, the intellectual challenge, but B, you want to make sure you've got enough money to survive and do things. And, you know, because there's always something you need to do. You know, I need to do a ton of work on the house in Grand Cayman and that sucks up a ton of money and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and that's how I think of it. I just think of it as, uh, as tokens. And if you get rich enough, then you probably give up with that game and you go and do something that you think is worthy because you've only got one life. And if it's not, it's not all about making money. It's about having the best quality of life that you can possibly achieve for yourself and your family. Absolutely. 20% into ether uh, or, or Ethereum. Um, explain kind of what the thesis there is. Is it a market structure thing? It's a smaller market cap and therefore if everything goes up, it should go up more. Is it uh, something around kind of the value and, and the technology? What's driving uh, the interest? There's a hunch that I have and it's only a hunch, hence why it's a much smaller position. There's a hunch that from all of my conversations around this whole space, that there is a massive amount of human capital, intellectual capital working in that particular space because of the, the flexibility of, of how Ethereum is based. And there's a load of flaws, like there's flaws about everything. So, you know, I'm not saying it's a perfect world. I also don't think of Bitcoin and Ethereum as the same thing. Bitcoin to me is this pristine collateral, it's, you know, it's perfect. I don't need, now whether everybody builds the lightning layer and all the other stuff on top, great. I own tons of Bitcoin, but I see the amount of intellectual capital that's going into the Ethereum space. And I'm thinking there's a chance that something really, really big comes out of this. And so I think of it as a platform. 
And it's a very crude way of looking at it. But if I see a lot of people all building on one platform, then the probability, you know, as a VC, the probability of one of those bets paying off huge, let's say DeFi ends up being on there and it becomes a real thing, whatever it may be. Who the hell knows? It could be intellectual property rights. I don't know. Don't care. The point being is I think there's a chance that Ethereum can have a larger market cap than Bitcoin. And that doesn't make it a better currency or a better investment. It's because by the nature of a platform versus an asset, you know, gold is the purest form of money that we've had. And it's a $10 trillion asset. The currency markets trade $4 trillion a day. And they're not, they're not in any way the same shape or form, but it's a bigger platform because more people use it. So the currency market overall is worth more. So I just think of it in those terms. And again, it's a very macro way of looking at it, which is not interested in the fight between the technologies and what tribe believes in what and how many coins can you measure and what's the total supply. It's like, okay, there is a chance here that this does really well. But I don't have enough conviction to make that my large bet. My large bet is Bitcoin because I have full conviction. Got it. And so uh, one of the things that's so interesting, whether it's you or other macro investors, uh, the common theme is uh, obviously courage, conviction, but also open mindedness. And I think that one of the things that uh, crypto probably doesn't do a good job of is uh, encourage the open mindedness. Right. It's very kind of tribal. Uh, Whoever's right, wrong, whatever. It's just a full out frankly, kind of intellectual war. It's like this war of attrition uh, when it comes to ideas, which there's very strong benefits and and there's some healthy nature to that. But when you look at it from a pure uh, kind of trading and investment standpoint, having the open mind to uh, read things, look at things, understand new things is really important. And so how do you... um, one, stay open-minded as you get older, you get more experience, you kind of have seen things and you don't fall into the trap of like, I've seen this before, or I know how this is going to work, or I'm the smart person in the room. Are there things that you do, content that you consume? Like, how do you keep an open mind kind of year after year after year for long periods of time? One thing I've learned is you need to think more about human behavior, and incentives and why people are doing things. So as you alluded to, why is it so tribal? It's actually a throwback to 2016, when there was a lot of these projects rising, nobody knew who was gonna win, everyone put their money in them and you want your own to win, right? It's like going to the horse races and saying- Sports teams. Sports teams, right? (laughs) And that war is still being fought and it's a false narrative now because Bitcoin's dominance as what it is is now established, it's clear, it's institutionalized, it's, it's all, that's over. So does it matter about the, the rise of these other things that they're not in competition with each other, but human behavior is driving that. And I think as a macro guy, it's actually to my advantage because if you call it shit coins, I wanna know about it because I know there's opportunity because you're being dumb. And you're being dumb, not that you might be right, but you've got a closed mind. And if I'm up against somebody with a closed mind, I can find an edge. And that's how I look at this. Um, And I look at this whole space and I see it's a very narrative driven space. It's all behavioral driven. So use that behavior to your advantage because within that is something interesting. I'm also intellectually interested in the future because that's what I do. And if somebody tells me not to look at Ripple, I will go and look at Ripple because you will not tell me what to do. And I will find out myself what its flaws and what its potential benefits are and assess the probability myself. 
I may reach exactly the same conclusion as, as you. I may reach a completely different conclusion. But imagine if I do, and I don't own Ripple. I don't, you know, I'm not getting into that fight. But let's assume I think it's got a 10% chance of becoming something much bigger, but the whole market is giving it a half a percent chance. Well, that misalignment in risk reward is a huge opportunity. That's what we do in financial markets. We have to remain open. You know, you can't trade financial markets to go, well, I'm only going to trade Apple. And every other company's a fraud. They're not as good because their phones aren't as good. I mean, that's ridiculous. What we look for is, okay, where is the secular trend change? What's the best vehicle to express that view in? Can I diversify that view? Can I add juice to that view? Can I create alpha around that view? So that's that's why I come at it, and I think all the macro guys, you know, Dan Tapiero, we all come at it exactly the same way. Dan Moorhead, we, we just we just come at it differently. And I understand that some of the crypto community doesn't like that because it feels like we're kind of abusive of the space. But, you know, much like I talked about with regulation, I get people upset when I say regulation is a good thing. Um, well, if you want to get rich, people kind of have to come into the space. And talking, you know, and I, I joke about this, talking about cyber hornets, I'm sorry, it's not going to bring a single corporate treasurer or a single institutional asset allocator into this game. And if you want to get rich, you need those guys to come into the game. It's a really difficult thing because people don't, don't want the traditional financial markets in this space, but they need it for it to go up. It's kind of weird. Well, and I think one of the things that uh, you're really describing here is kind of the um, the trend of technology adoption, right? There's kind of these different groups of people that uh, adopt things. And so, you know, the, the most extreme example is pretty much every electronic-based technology was adopted by criminals first, whether it was beeper, cell phones, you know, VPNs, all, all this kind of stuff. Now, they were doing it because they were constantly playing a cat and, a cat and mouse game with police, right, or law enforcement. And eventually that stuff gets normalized and accepted in the mainstream. And so I don't see anyone walking around being like, ah, cell phones, those are bad. Those criminals, they started using the cell phones first, right? Bitcoin for a while, that was the narrative was, oh, criminals use it. Now I think we're kind of escaping that and people are realizing, hey, this isn't just about criminal activity or anything like that. So there's pros to the adoption. The one thing, though, is that many of the people who are early, right, and if it works, they get financially rewarded for being early and having the courage and conviction to do it. But it also, the narrative does change, right? And, and to your point, the narrative has to change for some people to come in. And you get almost now uh, kind of the suits versus, um, you know, the... the uh, well, look, you know what it's like with music, right? When you, you say, oh, yeah, you know, I love XYZ, Radiohead. I like them in their early days, right? That's the standard line. And it's the same thing. Nobody wants it to change because they want to have it as they want it to be, as they see it. The problem is, is this is a network. It's a live, living, breathing thing. The narrative is going to change. The space is going to change. And there's nothing you or I can do about it. And that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of a distributed network is it's nothing down to us. We're, we're irrelevant in the picture. All we can do is... is Get involved or not involved, as simple as that. For sure. Speaking of getting involved, uh, institutions seem to uh, be racing each other to uh, to get in on uh, on the trade or, or get exposure. Um, I joke and say that uh, obviously, you know, kind of retail or individuals were first, probably one of the first times in history that uh, one of the best, if not the best trade in a decade, uh, individuals beat Wall Street to the trade, right? And, and that's hard for a lot of people to comprehend from the media to large asset allocators, uh, even to some individual uh, investors. Now, what we're seeing, though, is it's almost becoming cool 
or becoming necessary to have a Bitcoin strategy. And so it started with a lot of kind of the macro uh, investors that we've already talked about. Then we started to see a couple of corporate treasuries. Now it seems like every large institutional investor on Wall Street, whether it's Guggenheim, uh, whether it's Larry Fink from BlackRock, everyone is commenting about it. And it's hard to understand uh, kind of how serious some of them are, right? Some of them are actually changing documents and, and positioning themselves to get exposure. Others are saying, ah, maybe it can become something which isn't quite as far. How do you view the institutional interest right now? And then let's talk through kind of sequentially. Once an institution says, we need to do this, what is that process going to look like? And is that something that happens quickly? Or is that still a six to 12 month exercise uh, for capital to flow into the space? So um, before I get into a lot of that, you raised, the, uh, you used terminology that I've used for seven, six years in this space, seven years, which is everybody now has a Bitcoin strategy. So I've talked about this, and I talked about it a long time ago, is from what I could see, um, what I could see is there was a number of these narratives that happen to all corporates at the same time. So I saw it in, in, in the late 90s is we need to have an internet strategy. And before that, it was obviously a computer strategy. But from my career, it was like, we need to have an internet strategy. Then 2003, it's like, oh, God, we need a China strategy. Right. So everybody piled into China. Then 2010, it became, oh, we need a social media strategy as social media kind of took over the world. And then we've had in the last four years, we've had probably a split between we need to have a video strategy, which is one of the reasons we set up Real Vision. And the other one is probably an AI strategy, big, you know, data, big data strategy. And I've been saying for years, the next one to come is we're going to need to have a Bitcoin strategy. You know, or it's a blockchain strategy or whatever the whole space is. So that is happening, right? So that's a rolling process as the adoption of technology continues at a relentless pace. So from the conversations I've had, it's usually a passionate person internally. So there's a passionate person at the largest family office, one of the largest family offices I know, I can't, rem can't explain where it is because it'll give it away. Um, and he's been writing white papers for the head of the family about Bitcoin because that guy can make massive change. And you see that adoption. It takes, it's a fight. We all, all those people have to fight internally because somehow you need to get other people and a group of people involved. That's going on. Then on the other side of it, we've got the market cap going up. So at $100 billion, nobody cared. At $300 billion, it matters. At a trillion dollars, I need to be involved. So suddenly, if it's a trillion dollars, I need to be involved with the supply constraints in this thing. Um, it's a $5 trillion asset before you know it. Um, so that is going on. They are all having the conversation, but this is what I've been talking about, and I'm doing something about it myself now, is this community doesn't speak the language of those people. It's like me screaming at you in French. And you're like, I don't understand you. You know, we've got to stop speaking in terms of Bitcoin philosophy and all of this stuff if you want adoption. If you don't and you just want to talk about that stuff, that's fine too. So what are those, what language do we need to speak? We need to speak the language of, and I've talked about this, BARA, B-A-R-R-A, -R -R -A, risk modeling. 
That's an MSCI-owned product. There's a couple of other products like it, which is what all the big asset allocators use for modeling risk and deciding what assets and how they fit in a portfolio. Right? Nobody talks this language. Nobody talks about kind of the full correlation analysis and all of these things and portfolio effects. That needs to happen. Corporate treasurers, they need another set of stuff. And this is why, and this is going to annoy everybody, this is what investment bankers are so good at. Investment bankers are the people who know how to speak to these people. What is happening is the investment banks are starting to talk about this. And I'm getting phone calls. You know, on a personal level, many of them are involved. Structural level, they're not ready yet. But those bankers are coming out of banks, leaving them and saying, okay, I can help. So, you know, I'm speaking to another guy today from a firm in the US, super interesting, uh, setting up a, they're just kind of launching, um, but it's big. And it's all based around custody and brokerage for all of these wealthy families and these institutions based out of New York. Um, they're hiring these investment bankers because they know exactly how to speak to asset managers. So those conversations will happen. I'm trying to get a paper written by a Real Vision uh, member who happens to have been one of the guys who worked at Barra and all of this risk. Because I've been reaching out, he said, can I help? I said, yes, please. Can you just write me the paper that we all need to circulate to everybody to drive the next phase of, of helping these people get these people across the line? So, yeah. And so why is everyone's mind changing all at once, right? Whether it is individuals, whether it's macro investors, institutions, now you see even governments and, and corporations. I mean, everyone seems to be talking about this. And one of the, the frameworks that I use is Bitcoin is very quickly transitioning from contrarian trade to consensus trade. And obviously in that transition, if you are in before the transition, that tends to usually be a good thing uh, because the consensus trade is kind of what drives uh, the US dollar price of an asset. Um, what is it? Is it the macro environment? Is it just the lights clicked and the career risk is taken away and now Stanley Druckenmiller and PTJ are in? Or what, what is it? All of those are signals. The actual things were is all of us are uneasy. We've been uneasy since the financial crisis and probably since 2000. Anybody involved in financial markets has had a sense of unease. We've also had a sense of optimism about technology. And here are those things meeting. Here's the technological solution to the unease that we've been feeling. Um, and so I think that's why it's resonating. And people come from different angles, whether they're technology, this is an amazing future, or like, this is all fucked, I need something to help me, the life raft. All of those people are coming together. That's quite a super narrative. And I think it's dead right as well. I mean, this is why, I mean, when I look through the other side, I think we're going to, this is a fourth turning moment. I think the entire financial structure of the world is in flux. And if this moment gets seized upon properly, everything will change. Now, it doesn't mean we'll come up with a perfect answer. Maybe Bitcoin ends up being the solution at the very end, but we've got a lot between here and the very end to go. I mean, that's a couple of decades. So walk me out um, kind of in your mind, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what does that look like? Is it the hyper-Bitcoinization that kind of hardcore Bitcoiners would describe? Is it something else? Like when you look out and you're talking to uh, one of your macro investor friends or a family office or an institution, they say, hey, you got a lot of money allocated to this investment. Where are we going? How do you answer that? Okay, so the gateways that I'm looking for on a very macro perspective is 
okay, we've seen the fintech layer being built. We've seen the banks kind of go, okay, this is going to happen. What do we have to do? We've seen capital coming into the space to allow these people to build stuff. We've seen various different platforms and different solutions to different problems and solutions to problems that aren't problems either. <laughs> so we've, we've seen that. Okay, so that's great. That's where we are now. So what's the next big catalyst? Next big catalyst in prices institutions, but they're, they're not what's driving this space. The next part, because it's, it's the disruption of money that's going on. The next part is what the central banks are screaming at everybody is they are going to change money. And my belief in that is they are going to change money, not only just in the basket that we talked about, or some way, shape or form, but they're also going to change monetary and fiscal policy forever. They're going to blend. So central banks will be able to do direct stimulus. Now, that means the rise of behavioral economics, which has been used in Silicon Valley for a long time. Facebook's built on it, network effects, Metcalfe and all, they're all the same thing. Um, that is going to come into this space. So that means they can penalize you with negative 1% interest rates because you're a saver and give a student positive interest rates, or they could, they could do anything they want within programmable money. Now, Benoit Couré from the XECB, now the BIS, talks about this openly, that the central banks are going to go down two different paths. Some will just have a, a digital currency, which is just digital fiat, but it allows much easier transfer, and others will do programmable smart money. And clearly, people like the ECB are very interested in programmable smart money because they've got a banking system that doesn't work. Velocity of money around the world is zero, or less than one. So monetary mechanism doesn't work. So you need to change everything. I mean, they're literally going to change everything, I think. What you're talking about, and I don't think people really understand this, but this is uh, this is you know level 401, 501 in the college course, right? But is essentially having monetary policy customized and personalized to the individual level. And people can't think about that because they've never seen yes. it before. But I, it sounds like you do as well, fully believe that that is coming and it is part surveillance state. It is part, uh, you know, superpowers for a central bank. It is part technology advancement, like all these trends coming together. But this idea that I can actually treat you differently than your neighbor is the dream of a central bank. It's also, look, if I was given the same set of issues, let's say we're not going to get rid of central banks and go to Bitcoin overnight. And I'll come on to that process. So let's say I wanted to solve the problems that we've got now. This is genius. This is literally genius. Because if you have big data sets and behavioral economics, you can do some really, really powerful things. Now, the flip side is it's terrifying because it can be used nefariously. And governments are governments, and they will edge towards that. We get that, right? I'm not saying that it's good but it is also extremely good. If we had this in place through this crisis, we just had all the last crisis, we would have solved it so much faster. What interests me, again, it matters not what my opinion is. It's, is it going to happen? And what do we do? And again, people just get angry about it. I'm like, you can get angry all you want. If it, if it rains tomorrow, you can get angry about it, but it's raining. Whether you like it or not, deal with what is this is coming in one way, shape, or form. So, okay, we're now in the central bank digital currency world. We're five years out. That's when it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen within five years, right? So the world's changing. It's a big explosion. The central banks have all said, we want private sector to build out the fintech layer. 
happy with decentralized finance, happy with Bitcoin. We just regulate people on and off ramps, make sure everybody can use it. Let's go. Right. That's that's what the stage has been set. So then what's the next stage? Well, this is all for money still. And governments are governments, so they're going to use it for nefarious means over time. And we're going to get a bit more uneasy again about it. So what are we going to do? Well, there'll be some Latin American countries bored of having currency crisis after currency crisis say, well, you know what? I'm going to put Bitcoin into my reserve because Bitcoin at this point is probably a 10 trillion plus asset. You know, that's when I think it's worth a million dollars. Um, so five, six years time. So some country, Costa Rica goes, you know, we're going to hold our reserves in Bitcoin. And then, another, and then they get rewarded for it. Like, like Michael Saylor's just been rewarded for putting it into his company, right? It's the same process. And behaviorally and game theory will tell you that everybody else will start doing it. So then you have hard currencies versus other currencies, and it puts pressure on those other currencies. And so that's the process that can lead, can lead to hyper-Bitcoinization. Yeah. Does well, it get I, there? Who knows? But that's the process. I want to throw out one um, kind of variation to this scenario, because I think what you just described is what I'll call the central bank perspective. Like, how does the central bank eventually adopt it and we get to hyper-Bitcoinization? But one uh, kind of stepping stone in that direction that I've started to think a lot about and I want your opinion on is um, – actually switching cost and friction between currencies is very high right now. If I have dollars and I want euros, uh, for most people, that means like literally going to the airport and going to a currency changer and getting ripped off and like exchanging money, right? I mean, like at the most basic level uh, or fundamental level for the majority of people, like that is currency trading, right? Or, or exchanging. Obviously, as you get to more sophisticated levels of the financial sector, uh, that can become easier, less friction. But for the everyday person, it is super high cost and super uh, high friction in order to change currencies. Well, if all of a sudden all of the currencies are digitized, you have a digital dollar, digital euro, yen, all, you know, everything, and you have Bitcoin and, and you have everything else, and the adoption of digital wallets goes through the roof because now everyone needs a digital wallet – we're going to enter this world where the switching cost is the click of a button. So I can go from dollars to Bitcoin to euro back to Bitcoin to dollars with literally just the click of a button. And so one of the things that also going along this lines of kind of customization or personalization of monetary policy is we've all have this mentality that uh, you do everything in the same currency in your life. And the only time that I would go from dollars to another currency is if I'm traveling. But is there a world where maybe what we see is the United States says, hey, we want dollars for taxes, for example, or you have to make payments. But if I'm not actually spending, if I'm not conducting a payment, I will keep my wealth in Bitcoin, for example, right? So I use it as a store of value. And then when I want to come out, all of a sudden I click a button, I you know immediately transition into the dollar or digital dollar, and then I spend it. And so you now can almost get into this multi-currency type uh, modality that allows people not to be siloed or, or kind of confined to a single currency in their life. They can now use currencies for different purposes based on the advantages or disadvantages that that currency and that monetary policy provides. But I don't hear people talking about that. And, I, and maybe um, it's just because that world's never going to happen. I don't, I don't know. That's how every family office lives. Every single family office has done that for 50 years. They have a base currency where they have their expenses or their cash flow. Let's say they still own a business. Many of them will choose gold as a base asset and they'll switch around currencies accordingly for interest rate differentials or other advantages. So that is normal. It's just not normal for average people because the friction costs are too high. But for wealthy families, it's normal. For hedge funds, it's normal. For asset allocators, it's normal. 
So, yes, I think that's right. Um, I think gold I've always reserve, talked about as a personal reserve asset, but it's, it's clunky by actual physical definition. It's clunky, right? But Bitcoin, as you say, I got my wallet. I keep everything in Bitcoin. I flip in and out of what, where I need it, pay my taxes. I have to go to the store. Store doesn't use Bitcoin because they're in the tax system. Fine. That's no, that, that's no problem. Um, and I think that is part of the world that we will adopt it because it has uses for us. But that's the same use that the Costa Rica or whoever adopts it for the same reason. And that's, it's that process of choosing it as a base currency for everybody that happens over time behaviorally just because survivor takes the winner takes all essentially. But, but yes, people are going to get used to this. And again, they have no understanding what's coming. People just don't understand the amount of tokenization that's about to happen. All right. You are one of the most intellectually honest and open-minded people I know. So I've been looking forward all day to ask you this question. I want you to flip around on the table and argue against your bull position. What is the bear case for Bitcoin and what would have to happen for you to change your mind and sell your Bitcoin? Firstly, and obviously, price action. And that's not, you know, oh, I'm Raul gets scared as the mean, you know, don't scare Raul. It's we, like, we can't. We can't, Raul. <laughs> it's like, it's like if there is a structural change in the pattern. Here's something I've been thinking about that I don't think anybody's thinking through, right? Come all in, institutional investors, right? We want you in. Okay. But then we've got a problem is we're going to have to start dealing with month end rebalances, quarter and rebalances, where they become massive sellers. If Bitcoin goes up 100% in a month, which we've seen many times in the past, they end up selling 50% of their Bitcoin. Okay, that's suddenly a massive supply change to the market. So maybe the structure of the market changes in a way that doesn't have the risk reward that we're all expecting, because we're all a bit backward looking. You know, I look at, the, I look at the, my price projections from a number of different angles, but maybe the structure of bringing institutions in changes it entirely, in which case the volatility gets massively dampened, the price spikes get dampened, and in which case you don't really outperform, let's say, emerging markets. That's a, that's a possibility that's out there that people aren't thinking through. The more liquid a market, the less the volatility, the less the upside. The upside is so big right now because nobody's in it. Now, are, are there other market structure things that you would put alongside that? So that's one kind of red flag or, or thing to watch. Are there other things that you would put in that uh, category? I would say that if China nationalized the miners or did something, something completely outside of our expectations before we can diversify the mining pool, I know people are trying to build it off gas flares in Texas and other stuff, which is great. If something happens there where somebody could control it which i don't believe can happen but you know all sorts of things i don't believe can happen can happen um so there's something something there would make me concerned you know if i thought about what freaked me out in 2017 and why i got out early was people started forking the thing and we didn't know whether forks were going to work or not were they going to take half the liquidity and ruin the whole thing i didn't know so i'm like i'm out so something of that kind of nature would make me think. I don't know what that is, but you know, there's a lot of smart people developing a lot of things and who knows what comes along. Obviously, regulation. Should the regulators completely change course? 
All I see is positive regulation. But if the IMF stood up and said, we've agreed to move to the central bank digital currencies, and as part of that, every member of this basket has banned all cryptocurrencies. And they come with prison sentences, whatever. Yeah, clearly, I'm going to change my mind. Well, well, I, I don't know. Will I change my mind? Not change my mind. It kind of makes a better case for Bitcoin. But, you know, I kind of value I was going to say, there, there's two arguments there. The price goes down or actually the price explodes upwards. Yeah, I kind of value my freedom and I value my freedom. I don't want to go to prison and still be monetarily free. So, I don't know. Um, so, I, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. And that makes me nervous when I can't find anything obvious. But my guess is, with a strong, powerful force like this, Whatever will stop it is not obvious, which is why I thought maybe just the flows from institutions where like the hedge fund game when I started was 15% volatility and now it's 6% volatility and, you know, maybe maybe it changes. And then it becomes a different game. If that's the game, then the game is build applications on top as fast as you can. Once the volatility dies down, you can do anything with it because it becomes less of a speculative asset and it becomes an exchangeable asset. It becomes money, basically, more moneyness. So, so, and I think that that is, uh, if you were to ask kind of the believers of Bitcoin, so not traders who are just looking from a, a financial return perspective, or people who hold it and believe, you know, it's the next global reserve currency, etc. This idea of the transition of narratives, kind of the end game is it is a stable asset that uh, can be used as a uh, medium of exchange and a store of value. Part of what you're almost describing is like there's this trade-off between uh, if I am a trader and volatility gets dampened, that's a negative. But if I am a holder and I believe it's going to be the next global reserve currency, that dampening of volatility actually furthers my argument that it should be the next global reserve currency. Right? Like, like there's this yin and yang almost at play between and, those yeah, two things. And that's right, right? Because we're, what we're trading is the adoption curve. That's all we're doing. We're just trading Metcalfe's law, right? It's doing this. We're trading this. The top of the curve is full adoption. That's, and that's okay. Everyone has to play their part in that. And the end of it could be that Bitcoin is the world's reserve currency. Okay, we have to change the entire current global mechanism to, for that to happen. Great. We can all make money doing that too because people are going to be building businesses. There's, there's a whole world of stuff out there. But, um, you know... For me, looking that far out, I'm interested in it. I think it may happen. I think there's a reasonable probability over time. I don't know how long that time is. And I, all I do know is from here to now is a long time. Absolutely. Another question that a lot of people had was, uh, you've got this massive position, right, from a percentage base of your li- liquid net worth. What are the triggers uh, that would uh, you would look to to sell? So in a bull case, the price goes up, uh, th- there's certain events that happen. Uh, so one is just like, what would cause you to sell or, or uh, incentivize you to sell? And then two is, how would you structurally go about that? Is that a single trigger, I'm going to sell my entire position, or is that I'm going to sell into a bull market? How do you think about it? Basically, the answer is, well, I talked about lifestyle tokens, okay? I am actually taking another huge risk. I've built and run a business, and that's been a risky, hardworking enterprise, and I don't take any money out of that business. I draw an extremely small salary. So for me, I have foregone current returns for future returns. So if Bitcoin goes up a lot, I'll take some chips off the table. And so then I can know, okay, fine, anything happens, I'm safe. I always trade from position of security. And then I just run the rest. Now, yes, could I say I would probably scale out over price objectives and hold a core position. 
over time because I, I do think it goes a lot further up um, over time. And so, you know, can I suffer the downside? Will it be as well? Will it be a 90% downside this time? Highly unlikely. It'll look more like a commodity cycle, so probably 50%, 60%. But it could be, you know, the usual three or four years. And, you know, I would happily participate in that, you know, and just not worry about it. If I took some chips off the table, everybody's safe. I can do what I want to do. And I don't have to worry. What are the charts or metrics when you wake up every morning that you check first? Right. And I think of that as uh, kind of the things you check when you first wake up have the highest level of importance or signal. What are those things for you? So the next one is my Bloomberg screen. So, I mean, my Bloomberg screen is one whole group is all stock markets. And I actually don't look at them a lot. Well, I, I kind of do, but I don't really care because I, I don't even understand it any longer. They're so driven by human behavior that I'm like, whatever. I look at the bond market because the bond market is the truth of what's going on in the underlying economy. So it's always useful. Quick check of bond yields going up or down, anything going on. Quick check of commodity markets, just because, again, they're somewhere between sentiment and bonds. They're kind of economic, but slightly thin. And then I check uh, currency markets, of which I include Bitcoin as one of my currency positions. So that's why I, I just very quickly glance that. Okay, so now I know what's going on. Then I go to news. So I start start with Twitter unless you've been on my feed asking questions and I'm like, fuck, I can't even look at anything on it. So then I'll flip to the FT and, you know, flick through some headlines or Bloomberg. And when my Twitter feed is cleared up, I'll go back through it and be able to read uh, what's going on. Because Twitter is a great hive mind. I also use the Real Vision Exchange. There's some really smart people on that. Um, I'll then go and see what content was out on Real Vision that morning. Uh, and, you know, I'm up early. So usually I'll, I'll, I'll watch a, a video on Real Vision go through this, go through my email, go through all the markets, all between kind of five and six, five and six thirty in the morning. You mentioned Real Vision. Um, it has become one of, if not the go-to resource for kind of macro content. Um, for those that don't know, uh, Real Vision is basically uh, take all the great aspects of YouTube, but uh, bring the smartest people in finance on and basically they interview each other. And so you can imagine the quality of the information, uh, the insight, and, and just kind of what you can glean from that. Uh, how has it gone so far? And kind of talk to us about the growth this year, the launch of the crypto development. Uh, vision, I guess you would call it, um, and, and kind of how you view uh, the progress of Real Vision so far. Yeah, I mean, real, one of the premises behind Real Vision is, is that financial sense of unease. You know, it was all within all of us. And I knew that people needed better information. So that was the premise behind it. Democratize that information. Don't just give it to hedge fund guys like me. Let's give it to everybody. So that was the idea. Um, and that premise obviously came to life over this period is like everyone needs to know. Um, so that's been great. That's really helped change me. I get emails every single day. I mean, walls of emails, LinkedIn messages, Twitter, thanking us for doing what we've done to, to empower people. So that's been great. We launched a community because people want to speak to each other because they're a really smart group of people. Our users, our members are the learning tribe. I, I did a thing. I asked them to make a video to say about who they are because I didn't really know. You've got this breakdown of, you know, 52% US and 45% financial market professionals. I'm like, who the hell are these people? Amazing. We've got like 300 videos. We've got neuroscientists in South Korea doing neuroscience while watching Real Vision video or listening on his earpods. One of the guys working on the biggest telescope in the world in the Atacama Desert, uh, a um, astrophysicist, is watching Real Vision 
while he's waiting for the stars to come out to taxi driver. I mean, but they all come with knowledge. So that whole community thing is exploding for us. Um, and then, so the business is doing, you know, really, really well for us. And we're just becoming a kind of a center of this community, of the financial community. And that's great, where we all kind of work, play together. Like, you know, I'll come on your podcast, you'll come Real Vision. We're all part of the same community. And Real Vision is just becoming the kind of meeting place for all of that. And many people came to us and said, you need to do something in crypto. Because one thing about Real Vision was we're unbiased. I may have a view, but I'm not Real Vision. Real Vision is you coming on and talking to somebody else or, you know, one person interviewing another. It's, it's, it's the broad exchange of views. So somebody said, listen, we've got a problem in the crypto space we need to be able to talk the language of institutions. We also be, need to be less tribal and more understanding of each other of what's really going on out there because this is a broad shift. And many big players came to us and said, can you do something about this? So we decided that we would launch something in the spirit of crypto. We thought we'd do it free. And the only way of solving for free was working with some of the you know, best partners in the world. So we've done it with BlockFi and Silvergate. And we just sort of announced another sponsor. But basically, we've created Real Vision all over again, but just crypto. And that's every aspect of this, from Bitcoin maximalist to people doing weird little applications somewhere, everything. Because we want to just make sure that the playing field is leveled. Just because you were in early doesn't mean you get all the chances. That's not fair, because that's the same as the financial markets were before. What it is here is we're democratizing this too and get everybody into the space. And it's been amazing. I mean, we only launched a week ago and we've got 50,000 people on the platform already. It's crazy. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, people, um, and- I love the and, internet, man. <laughs> it's, ama I mean, it's amazing, it's amazing. So, you know, it's uh, it's growing fast, but Real Vision itself, even the YouTube, the standard YouTube channel, we're now 400,000 subscribers and like 3 million views a month and podcasts, our podcast now does, 650,000 downloads a month and we're launching four more podcasts. We're launching education as well. We've got whole education tiers coming free within the content. So not only because again, you and I know a lot of people don't understand what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So what we're building in is education into all of those membership tiers that's free, world-class mm -hmm. knowledge. So you can get your education and then get the content to help you figure out what's going on. Makes so much sense. All right, before we wrap up, I want to play a rapid fire game with you. I'm going to throw out a word or a phrase and you just mind dump on me whatever comes to mind. Okay. Ready? Yeah. First up is Bitcoin. Winning. Ethereum. Interesting. XRP. Hilarious. <laughs> Central banks, net sellers of gold. Boring. Stanley Druckenmiller. Legend. Paul Tudor Jones. Mentor. <laughs> Kathy Wood. Amazing. Federal Reserve. Boring. <laughs> Janet Yellen. In one word. You can do multiple words. Interesting to see where this goes. That's a central banker running running fiscal policy, which is what I was talking about before. <laughs> and lastly, financial markets under a Biden administration. Same as it's ever been. It's pretty good.
Where can people find you on the internet and find out more about Real Vision? Yeah, find me on Twitter. I'm always hanging around, causing trouble or answering questions. I, I, you know, I do get involved. So at Raoul, R-A-O-U-L, G-M-I. And um, Real Vision Crypto, because I know a lot of people watching this, crypto people, just realvisioncrypto.com or just go to the homepage and click on the crypto bit. And it's free. So just stick in your email and you're wall-to-wall, a fire hose of content. Listen, man. As always, it's a pleasure. We're going to have to do this again. And hopefully next time we do it, uh, we will not be in COVID uh, time so we can do it again in person. Yeah, we'll get you to Cayman next time. (laughs) I'm definitely game. Peter McCormick's coming, so perfect. (laughs) That's right.